if you'd join with me in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity just to open up your word together. Such an amazing privilege that we, we think of as sometimes as, as, as a chore, sometimes as an afterthought, but it's, it's a privilege. So thank you, Lord. And I pray that you fill us with your spirit. Open our hearts to you even as we open your word to us. I give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week in military history. Um, I love history. I, I've always loved history. 211 years ago this week, the British invaded Detroit. Um, yeah, you don't normally think of Detroit, Michigan going down in a fight against England. Um, but that's not part of the Revolutionary War. That's part of the War of 1812, the war that everybody goes, oh, that's right. Um, which I think is like the worst named war in history because it was two and a half years long. It started in 1812 and it went to 1815. So, War of 1812? The Revolutionary War... Well, that was the one everybody remembers. That's the one, you know, the tricornered hats. Because what kind of hats do they wear in 18... You don't know. Two of you might know. But the Revolutionary War, it's the war everybody knows. Tricornered hats, flintlocks, all this stuff. And it ended not because we won, but because the British went, oh, piffle, and left, right? They just stopped and said, fine, whatever. And they just waited for the next war when they could just take it all back. So they were fighting, the, the British were fighting Napoleon, and they decided to take American sailors off of American ships to put them on British ships to fight Napoleon, and amongst other different things, riled up Native American tribes to attack settlers, etc., because they basically just saw us as British rebels pretending to be a country. But they're like, yo, you're still us. I mean, really? And we didn't like that. We're like, stop it, and they wouldn't stop it, so war. But um, because we were not still all that prepared, it had only been like a generation since the end of the Revolutionary War, we weren't that much more prepared for the War of 1812. So for the longest time since England's fighting Napoleon and we're still scrambling, there were no decisive battles. It just kind of slogged on for years. But as it went along, we kept getting better and better at it. We kept capturing more of their ships, building more ships. So by the time you get to, to like August of 1814, England's like, I don't think we're going to win again. And, and there's only so many, they're like, we're having to send people over to another continent to fight people who are just keep making more people and more ships. They have more wood than we do. They have more everything than we do. The longer this goes on, the less chance of winning we have. So eventually, by the time you get to December of 1814, they decide we're going to we're going to just have another treaty. We're going to bring this war to a close, and so we all signed the Treaty of Ghent, which is not in either England or America, right? They keep Ghent over in Belgium, and they keep Belgium over in Europe. <laughs> and this is a time when information only travels as fast as the fastest ship, right? So what's interesting is the most decisive battle of the War of 1812 was fought in 1815, two weeks after the end of the war, in the Battle of New Orleans. We're finally getting good at this, and somebody had the wherewithal to give Andrew Jackson a gun. Andrew Jackson just couldn't lose, and Andrew Jackson held 
New Orleans from the British, didn't let the British in, and, and in 1815, at the Battle of New Orleans, he repelled the British invasion. It went for a full day. British casualties were 2,042 in one day. American casualties, 71. That's a significant difference. That is one where you go, and I believe you can officially say British bottoms have been kicked on this day. It's a great song, Battle of New Orleans. Look it up on YouTube. Point is, you might say, why, A, are you talking about any of this, and why does any of this matter? The point is that, as ridiculous as it can sound to us sometimes today, sometimes, even after a war has officially been won, there's still battles to be fought. There's still stuff you need to do. It's still crucially important to keep on fighting, not only because the bad guys sometimes keep attacking, even after the war is won, but also because sometimes you need that decisive no seriously. Because at the Treaty of Ghent, it was another piffle. But you notice we didn't have a third war against England, and it's because of the Battle of New Orleans. At that battle, and some of the Stephen Decatur things, no, that's a whole other... But England went, I don't think we're ever going to beat these guys because of a battle that was fought after the Declaration of Victory. It's not, it's not just bravado. It's not just so that you can go, ha, ha, we're better. It's so that you, you put everything that happens next into a context, into a clear focus. It's a decisive victory so that everybody's on the same page. Does that make sense? And even if you're sitting there going, I still don't know where you're going with this, fine, you'll figure it out as we go, because I want to be able to talk about this as we're in First Peter, and I don't want to have to bring all this back up again. So I want you to go, oh, that's where he's applying it. If you haven't already done so, if you could turn to First Peter chapter 3, I'd like to pick up where we left off. And I know we've had some guest speakers and some things in between, but I want you to remember where we were at in First Peter 3, where we left off. Because Peter has said some, well, just very profound things, but also some things that are a little hard emotionally. I mean, we just left off where he was talking about this radical humility that says, even when things are hard, even when the people don't seem to deserve it, I want you to think, I want you to make sure that your thoughts are in harmony with those around you, and I want to make sure that your heart is in harmony with those around you. I want you, as much as it's up to you, I want you to be walking in a way that's humble and loving with the people around you, even the ones that are messed up. (sighs) This week, It's going to be a little complicated too, but not necessarily because of the emotions, but because, quite frankly, it gets so weird this week. (laughs) One of the things that I learned in in my sermon classes in seminary, they said, please don't have really good sermon illustrations. I want you to have mediocre sermon illustrations. But if they're really good, you can lose the people because they're thinking about the sermon illustration for the rest of the day. I want you to have mediocre, helpful sermon illustrations so if you sit there and go, Kevin is just a mediocre speaker. On purpose, people. I do that for you. Peter apparently never took a homiletics class because to be helpful, he gives this bizarre sermon illustration. Now, it wasn't bizarre for them. That first century audience, when he's first writing it, they're like totally tracking with you. Yep. But in the century since, we have gone so many different wackadoodle versions of what he was saying. And you go, well, that's not what he's saying. It's demonstrably not what he's saying. But we get a little lost. So today we're going to do a little detective work. And I know, you go, well, is that in a sermon? Because 
what he is actually saying is worth unpacking. Okay? All right. So, 1 Peter 3, verse 17. Hopefully you're there now. It's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, right? We talked about that a little bit last time. There's going to be pain and suffering in life, right? It's a broken world. There's going to be. It's unfortunate. You can't, you can't avoid pain entirely, and, and so your, your joy and looking for joy can't be dependent on joy avoiding pain because then you'll never find it, because there's always going to be some pain. One of my favorite, if not my favorite quotes, is that much suffering can be avoided by the cultivation of an insignificant life. You can avoid pain. The only cost is insignificance. No consequence. You'll have touched nobody, have changed nothing. You'll live, you'll watch TV, you'll do your job, you'll eat dinner, You'll go to bed, and that's the extent of which your life touches the rest of the world. You'll avoid a lot of pain that way, either because you just never step in things that are complicated or because you're so numb that you don't feel it when bad things, hard things happen. Or maybe you dodge a lot of bullets that Satan would have thrown your way, but he doesn't want to waste the ammo on somebody who's not doing anything. But you can avoid a lot of pain just by being insignificant. But if you, if you want to have a life that has any purpose, any consequence to it, if you want to have any impact on the world because you lived in it, if you want to live like an ambassador to a kingdom that's very different, then there's going to be pain. And if there is going to be suffering, Peter says it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Right? You're, if you're going to be feeling pain anyway, do the right thing. Christ left us an example to follow, and it's a life of joy and pain, consequence, and vibrancy. It's, a, it's an abundant life that's supposed to be lived abundantly, richly. And if you're turning the saturation up on everything, sometimes that also includes suffering. Don't dodge it. Learn how to surf it. For Christ died for sins once for all, he says, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And that's the basic gospel message in a nutshell, isn't it? I mean, look at, look at verse 18. Just look at it in your Bibles. Did he die simply for some people? Some people. What does verse 18 say? For all people, right? Did he die simply for good people? No, just, he died specifically for the unrighteous. And why did he die? To do what? To bring you to God. That's one verse, and look at all you learned. It's amazing. People are forever going to Romans Road. I'm like, 1 Peter 3.18, knock yourself out. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, Peter says. He, Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He seemed to have lost the battle, but then he came and won the war, because wars aren't always over when you think they're over. Sometimes there's fighting, even when you think the war's over. The disciples were hiding in the upper room because they thought the war was over, right? Like, oh, we lost. Oh, no, we didn't. Jesus said, no, 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 just that one part is finished. This part of the fighting is just beginning for you guys. There's still stuff going on. But that's not the whole sentence that Peter writes because verses 18 to 22 is one sentence in the original. So I'm going to read it to you as one sentence in a more literal translation so, so you get a feel for what Peter's saying. So he says, if it, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, right? 
Because, because this is all still one sentence, okay, because Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but then made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water, corresponding to which you now have been saved through baptism, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, as if the water did something, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. <gasps> and that explains everything, right? They're all like, oh, thank you, Peter, for going off on those little rabbit trails. Now everything's so much clearer. Or do you find yourself going, wait, what? What? We, what could you back up? No. But it, Peter's just trying to talk about how Christ suffered for doing good too. It's better if you suffer for doing good. I mean, even Christ. And you go, okay, you've made that point. And he's like, well, let me go on. Go, oh. Unfortunately, the, in, in, over the centuries, the, the, the tidbits that he includes here that seemed very clear to Peter and would have been very clear to his original audience have spawned gazillions of different rabbit trails. So Jesus preached t- to dead people? Jesus went to hell? Wait, Jesus only preached to the people who sinned before Noah. Anybody after Noah is toast? It's like Moses. Yeah, no, he doesn't get a shot. But anybody before then? Wait, baptism saves you? I thought, wait, that's not what saves you. Wait, when exactly were these angels and powers subjected to Jesus? Because it's not talking about that being at the beginning. It's talking about that somehow being at this point. It seems convoluted. Again, to the people he was writing it to, it would not have been convoluted at all. They would have gone totally tracking with you. To us, it can get a little weird. So let's do a little bit of detective work. Just hang on with me for just a second. Remember the context. Context is king. It's not just a bunch of weird doctrines. The context is Peter's talking about how Jesus died and yet still has angels and authorities and powers subjected to him. And he died ultimately to show it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Even when Jesus died, it's the ultimate example of a good man dying and suffering for doing good. But it's still a good thing. It was demonstrably better for everybody involved that he did die. That's the context that you should put all that in. So anything that we pull out of this should come within that framework. After his death, Jesus was made alive in the spirit. He didn't stay dead. And then he's gone to make proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And he could take that at face value, but it would be a mistake because that's not what it's saying. Did Jesus die to go to hell to share the gospel with dead people? No, that doesn't actually make sense even within the context. First off, everything in Scripture Everything in Scripture suggests that your opportunity for repentance ends at death. Hebrews 9 says, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. The idea that somehow you can get a second chance somewhere along the line, if Jesus swoops in, if you happen to be in the right clump of people, but not Moses, not people post this, but no. None of that seems to be there. Plus, nothing else in 
First Peter ever talks about Jesus giving people a second chance, going to hell, anything like that. That's an awfully big bite to throw in there if that's what he's getting at. The word that's used here in verse 19 is made proclamation. It's not the word for preaching. It's not the word for evangelizing. He's not sharing a gospel message. He's making a proclamation of victory to somebody. And the word spirits here is never used anywhere else in scripture to refer to a human being. It is used several places to refer to angels and demons, but not people. And the word translated prison here is never used anywhere else in scripture to ever refer to the grave or to hell. But it was used in Revelation 20 to refer to a dungeon where Satan and his demons are awaiting final judgment. Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? He's not preaching to dead people in hell, making proclamation to demons in a prison somewhere that they're being held for final judgment. Besides, if he was preaching to the dead, why only to those who died prior to the flood? Well, verse 19 says all of them are still there. None of them have been saved by this, right? So Jesus is a really bad evangelist? For that matter, it says that he did this proclaiming after he came back to life in the Spirit. So the idea that Jesus died and went to hell, and while he was there, he made the best of it? Like, no, it's after he came back to life that he did this. He made a proclamation to someone. So, doing the math. Even on the surface, to the original audience, it's talking about Jesus proclaiming victory to a defeated enemy, probably angelic enemy, who disobeyed before the days of Noah. Now, I don't know whether that's talking about angels who fell following Satan in the initial rebellion. I don't know if it's talking about the sons of God that Genesis 6 say are seduced and, and sinned right before the flood. We could also point to Jude uh, chapter 1, verse 6, where we're told the angels who didn't keep their positions of authority but abandoned their home, these God has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Which kind of sounds like what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter. I don't even have to do any of that. You know why? Because 2 Peter makes it even more clear. There is a parallel in 2 Peter. His second letter, written by the same guy. 2 Peter 2, 4 says, If God didn't spare the angels when they disobeyed, but sent them to Tartarus, putting them in a gloomy dungeon, again, using words that have never been used to hell, about hell and never used about people, fallen angels chained, chained in dungeons, to be held for judgment. If he didn't spare the ancient world when he then brought the flood on the ungodly people, but protected Noah, which again, sounds an awful lot like what he's saying in 1 Peter. If this is so, Peter says in 2 Peter, then the Lord knows how to, one, rescue godly men from trials, and two, hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. He knows what he's doing. He's on it. That's the point he's making in 2 Peter. God knows what he's doing. I know it's a whirlwind, but try to wrap your head around this much. It isn't about Jesus descending into hell. Bible never says he did. Or about him preaching gospel to the dead. Bible never says he did. But Peter is trying to make a point, and he's making a point in both of his letters. And he's making it using the same basic metaphors, the same basic ideas. In both letters, he's saying the same thing. It's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for evil. Even Christ died for being good and made proclamation to the demons that they've lost. That even in this death, he has won. And that means 
if he has made this proclamation, that the Lord knows how to rescue you from your trials, and the Lord knows how to hold the unrighteous to the day of judgment. He knows what he's doing. He's making the same point in both of these. Satan thought he'd beaten Jesus with the cross. Probably was pretty clear. But Peter reminds us, just like Jesus reminded the demons, that today we're not fighting for a victory. We're fighting a mopping up action after the victory. We're fighting a struggling, straggling, defeated foe. This isn't bravado. This isn't being obnoxious. This is saying decisive victory. I've won. No. Okay, yeah, well, piffle. No. I've won. It's over. The rest of this now is just mopping up. Does that make some sense? You might go, okay, whatever. Thanks for unpacking that. What, what does that mean for us? It's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If that was true even for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And even that was part of God's plan to bring about good in this broken world. Then what on earth is going on in your life today that's even remotely as unfair or remotely as terrifying as the cross? And if God could use that to do good, the most suffering that you could possibly imagine of the most good person who's suffering because they did the most good stuff, then what about the good that you and I can do? Is it worth trying to make sure that we do good, even if we suffer some for it? Giving you the ultimate example, the ultimate example, going through the ultimate example. I think you can get through whatever you're going through, is his point. How might God be using that, using you to further his perfect will, the will that's ultimately best for you, me, everybody around us. If, if Christ has already won the war, and yet we know that the enemy is still prowling around like a lion, looking for any stragglers and any civilians he can pick off along the edges of the battlefield, but he's awaiting a final judgment. He knows he's lost. If the war itself proper is already over, what does that suggest about how you and I fight this mopping up action of the day-to-day? -day? Is this something where we say, man, I hope I get through this. Man, I, I don't know if I could, I, I don't know if God will be there. I don't know. You've already won. Now you just need to overcome. You just need to get through this part. But you're not trying to conquer Satan. You're not trying to conquer anything. You're simply fighting a battle to come through the other side. All you need to do, everything in Peter's sermon illustration here, and in Second Peter, everything suggests that the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from their trials. He knows how to get you through where, what you need to go through. And he knows how to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. He knows what he's doing, and he's still sovereign. So hold on. When things are scary, when things are hurting, when you're experiencing suffering, God doesn't promise that you're going to get it through everything without pain. We, we already botched that part. What he is saying is you can get through everything. You can get through everything. You can. You can make it through. You can make it through with your faith intact. You can make it through with the right heart. You can make it through knowing that you know where this is going. You can make it through. 
Because it's better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. There's a purpose to it. There's an end to it. And this place is never supposed to be your comfy home anyway. You're just passing through here. This is the place you've been saved from. So many people are like, I want to still be saved here. How do I get there? How do I stay here as long as possible? I don't want everybody going and jumping off a cliff, but really, this is the place you want to stay? This is the place we've been saved from. This is the place that God says, trust me, this is not all there is. We go, can I have more of it? Why? Of course, that if we're talking about saved, that brings me back to the baptism part. Because there are people who say, oh, well, this clearly says you're saved through baptism. Baptism is the avenue with which you're saved, right? Okay, it's paralleled here with Noah being saved through the flood, right? So do the math with me. Did the flood save Noah from drowning? No, the ark did. Jesus, the God, saved Noah. Noah wasn't saved by, by means of, the waters of the flood. He and his family were saved through, as they passed through the waters of the flood, by the ark. They were saved by the ark as they passed through. They were saved through this flood to come out the other side, due to their faith in God. That's what the word through is meaning there. So the parallel here isn't that we're saved by, by means of the water of baptism. It's that we're saved through, as we pass through the waters of baptism, as we say, I went down one thing, I died and I came up. I have been saved, and I am something new. I have been saved by the faith that I have in God. The focus here in 1 Peter is not the water or the action of baptism, but on the pledge of a good conscience. Verse 21 even specifically says that. It's the pledge of a good conscience, not the water itself. The thief on the cross in Luke 23 was never baptized, yet because of his faith, Jesus assured him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, in Acts 16, when the jailer specifically asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul never mentions baptism, but says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Again and again, it's not the ritual that saves us. It's not the baptism. It's the faith. It's the pledge toward God. It's the oath of fealty toward our Lord. That's the avenue of, of salvation. It's just that the first thing you should do if you are repentant is Make a public declaration that that's, I'm something different. I'm something new. In fact, that's what the jailer did. He and his whole family, once they believed, the first thing they did was, how do I show that I've died and I've come up something new? It makes sense. But you're not saved through, i.e., by means of the baptism. Hopefully I did that as quickly and as clearly as possible. I just don't want people walking away, oh, we're saved by baptism. No, 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 no. Maybe this will help Maybe to, to look at the flow of this, to realize that ultimately all that stuff about, gra- about baptism grammatically connects to verse 18, that whole Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's why he died. And so you are now saved through baptism as you go through baptism. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, that's not what saves you, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is already at the right hand of God, who he's bringing you to, right? That's at the end of verse 18. He did this to bring you to God. By the way, he's already there waiting for you. Didn't he promise that? So he's like, he's already there waiting for you, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. All those parentheticals 
It's all thrown under the under there saying, all of this is to say that Jesus is on top of it. He's there. He's waiting. He's already won. You just need to get there. That's all you need to do is get there. We just want an outward expression of this inward conscious personal pledge or appeal to God for a good conscience. Dunking in water is what baptism has. The pledge of a good conscience is what baptism is. Does that make sense? Okay. So, it's you making this personal promise that you want to have faith in God, you want to repent, you want to live for him, making a public declaration that you want to commit to Christ as your Lord. Now, if you want to put all the parentheticals at the end, because why not just mix it up? Everybody trying to memorize these verses is like, why? Because I want you to understand them. So, mixing it all up together. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So you're now saved within that baptism by means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not by means of the removal of dirt from the flesh, you know, the water, but by means of a pledge of, to God of a good conscience, that inward spiritual act of genuine faith. That's what he's getting at here. It's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's the ultimate example, death on the cross, ultimate example of suffering for doing good. But one last subtle thing, maybe, maybe just look at it one last time with this. Not only did that give Christ the final victory over sin and death that he then proclaimed to the angels who had rebelled, but it also purchases us the right to be saved as we pledge our hearts to follow God's will. Which means that ultimately Peter's point is Christ's death on the cross bought you the grace to accept what the angels threw away. They followed God and then decided not to. And they're waiting in gloomy dungeons. You didn't follow God until by his grace you decided to start. Your book ends. They fell away. You were brought close by the one who's already won the war. So what are you afraid of? What holds you back? What makes you stutter step? If you've been given what angels long to look into and say, I wish I understood how they've been given this grace that we could never get. Peter's like, seriously, just hold on. Just hold on and live this out because this place, you're just sojourners here. You're just passing through. Our Savior, the one who loves us, Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's why he did it. And that one stands at our side, just as he stands at God's side, as our protector, as our advocate. He's gone into heaven. He's now at God's right hand with the angels and the authorities and the powers and anything that you could possibly be afraid of, the pumas and the bears and the really angry monkeys and all those things subjected to him, waiting for you, all ready to where he's bringing you to. Active, fighting, ruling in power. What on this broken little fly speck of an earth could we ever think could drag us from it or break us down unless we let it? Do we, do you and I, do we live like we believe this? 
Do we? Do we live when we hear prognoses? Like we genuinely believe that God's got this and we can make it through. Not necessarily survive it because ultimately, I know I won't. And ultimately, ultimately, I don't want to. I don't want to stay here indefinitely. I want to stay to, I want to be in a much better place. When, when somebody slights us or offends us, do we live like, well, this place was never my home in the first place. My priorities are different. My, my God has already won. When things loom and seem so huge, do we live like our priorities are heavenly? Like our home is heavenly? Like our God is heavenly and like the victory's already been won? Or do we live like, well, I've got to win this? Do we live each day as if our priorities, our passions, our purposes are reflecting this place or reflecting our true home? You need to make that decision every day. You can't say, I've always thought that. You go, yeah, nope. It's I always every day have to continually make that decision. I'm not from this place. But I am an ambassador in this place. Therefore, he says, because Jesus has won the war of all wars and has already proclaimed the victory, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he doesn't live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And we'll pick all that up next week, but the one thing I wanted you to see in this context is that he says the war is over, so arm yourselves. Right? He won. He made a proclamation of victory. It's over. It's done. He's waiting for you. You just have to get there. Arm yourselves. But you're not fighting for a victory. That's already been won. And you're not fighting for eternal life, for survival, because that's already been assured. What are you fighting for? His glory. You're fighting to be the people died to make you into you're dying you're fighting to live every day like this is who i was sculpted to be and i want to end the race with my head up high being the person god wanted me to be and i can do that by his strength and for his glory amen let's pray dear lord i thank you so much I thank you that uh, <laughs> you're clear to you, even if sometimes we struggle to understand. But I do pray, thank you for that simple truth. You've already won. You've given us your victory. We don't need to fear the sting of death. We don't need to fear Satan's power. We don't need to fear tax day. We don't need to fear being fired. We don't need to fear because you've already won. So help us, Lord, to live each day in your victory as ambassadors of your place. I give this to you in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.